Today, Father Brad has on the show Dr. Jennifer Miller, professor at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans and leader of an institute that's tackling the idea and the theology and expounding upon the theology of gender theory, the importance of gender in theology. Stick around. Should be a great show. You're listening to Coffee Talk with Father Brad. Hey guys, welcome to Coffee Talk, uh, where we drink coffee and talk about Jesus. And actually, I have some coffee. Hold on. Afternoon coffee is always good on a Sunday afternoon. I'm recording on Father's Day, um, so I already gave a Father's Day uh, episode with a homily from Father's Day and Trinity Sunday, but um, since we're recording on Father's Day, happy Father's Day to all those fathers out there. I have a, a story. So a couple of weeks ago, I was going to meet a, a couple um, friends of mine who were moving out of town, and I decided to uh, go to Yale College Inn a little before in order to you know sit down. And, and I don't, I'm not suggesting this for anyone out there, but you know I like to go to Yale College Inn, sit outside, get an old fashioned, and pray officer readings. <laughs> So, so I go to sit down and I'm like, you know, I don't know if people, if this is good or I should do this, but I do it cause it's awesome. And I trust me, that's really good prayer on South Carrollton. Um, and I hear a knock on a window behind me and someone caught me and that was professor, Dr. Jennifer Miller. She caught me praying the divine office with an old fashioned. Oh, but, um, so, and we, we talked and she, she said that she'd be willing to do a coffee talk episode about her studies, her, I guess, um, sabbatical. She's going on sabbatical to uh, do uh, a study into gender theory and the church's understanding of the complementarity of the sexes. So I have with me right now, Dr. Jennifer Miller. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you so much for asking me. I'm very excited to join you with my lukewarm afternoon coffee. <laughs> yeah, it's not an old fashioned. <laughs> it's not an old fashioned. Which is probably best. Um, so yeah, it's a lukewarm afternoon. I hope it's this afternoon. <laughs> I pour it sometimes at the seminary and I'm like, it might be yesterday, but uh, I don't care. Father um, Rainer, we are using your coffee cups outside of the dining room. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They're all chipped and I'm, I might steal it. I'm just joking. I'm not going to steal it. That would be immoral. It would be completely immoral. <laughs> and she knows because... Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Notre Dame Seminary. Thank you very much for asking, Father. So I am Cajun, and I always start off with that because I think it's really important, right? That's so epic. I'm a hometown girl. My mom is from Mamu. My daddy's from Opelousas, so Diocese of Lafayette all the way. We just celebrated 100 years last year, which is really exciting. Um, and after I finished my bachelor's in theology, I did youth ministry for a couple years in Ville Platte. And then my spiritual director at the time was like, you're young, you're single, go to Roman study. So that's what I did. So <laughs> Wait, that, that, those things go, you're young, you're single, go to Rome. All you out there, that's what you should do. Just so you know. Hey, it's awesome. Um, so I did, I went and I wanted to go for a couple years. My dad had been a seminarian at, at St. Joseph's. Um, and I felt that I owed a lot of my own formation to his seminarian formation. So I went for what I thought was three years. It was 10. <laughs> and then I came back and I was a moral theologian. And uh, providentially, Notre Dame Seminary was looking for a moral theologian at that time. So about five years ago, I started here at the seminary, um, being that female moral the theology professor teaching young men preparing for the priesthood. And it has been an amazing ride. Yeah, and we're really grateful for your presence here at Notre Dame. I know I was on my kind of my way out. I never got the 
privilege of having uh, Dr. Miller as a professor, um, but from what I hear, she's fantastic, but a hard grader. Have you heard that? <laughs> I do hear that sometimes, but I always take it as an expression of love, right? You always want the parent who, who loves you and calls you to do your best. Exactly. That's true. That's true. We, we need to hold, especially our guys studying to be priests. I mean, in these areas too, morality, I know as a priest, some of the, the most difficult pastoral situations I'm put in, I'm faced, I face immediately after being ordained is those involving morality, right? It's not so much liturgy, not so much all, and that's in there, right? Doctrine, right? The the, the Trinity. Okay. I did have to preach Holy Trinity in my first homily as a deacon and as a priest. Uh, but it, it's really those questions of morality in a lot of ways now in uh, society, sexual morality. And um, so we need rigor. We need rigor. We can't just pass it along. Um, our priests need to be able to meet the people where they're at and they have those questions. So thank you. Um, I just, I'll, I guess we'll get into our topic. I'll tell you a story about what happened this past week. Um, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. So uh, we have a two-week summer camp. Instead of doing faith formation or CCD or PSR, people call it different things. Instead of doing it during the year, all the way during the year where the kids are it's after school, they're tired. They're, they don't want to listen. They, they're just ready to go home. And you just get them every other week or so. We're doing a two-week camp where it's almost like school for two weeks, but it's faith school. And I, one of the young classes, um, I was asking, I was talking about liturgical seasons. And I said, I said, uh, hey, what are some other seasons? And kids are like, oh, football season, you know, hunting season, crawfish season down here. And I wanted them to go there because I wanted to say, hey, we have, you know, liturgical mm -hmm. seasons or church seasons. And then this, this really, really young girl, like, didn't even know what she was saying, really. She goes, pride season. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, dang. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, she's a little, I'm not going to go, well, let me tell you the, you know, to uh, these, these really young kids. Um, so I just moved on. But it, it, it was an experience of this is a part of our culture. It's a part of our kids' culture. It's a part of our young people's culture. Everybody, um, this idea or I guess the world's understanding or changing understanding of sexuality gender even specifically. Um, and, and you are doing a sabbatical in order to dive deeper into the church's what? You explain it. I don't want to miss explain it. Thank you. So, um, no, thank you for asking. Well, a couple years ago, I was privileged to go to a conference on gender theory being run in a seminary. And to be honest, I kind of avoided it when I got back. Um, every year, somebody would be like, you should look into gender theory. You should look into gender theory. And I thought, okay, I'm exhausted. I spent 10 years abroad. <laughs> and then I thought, I already have to talk about like awkward, holy things with young men preparing to be priest every year anyway. Like, I don't want this to be the thing that I do. Um, and then when I went to this conference, what I realized was, although there was a lot that the church was pulling from in terms of biology, medicine, public policy, and philosophy, to try to address gender theory, it really wasn't pulling from theology or the word of God. And I thought, you know, in, in its essence, gender theory is asking, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? Are there meanings to these things, right? Is this something imposed on me by biology? Is it merely a cultural construct? And even if you listen to the videos or, or read the blogs of people who 
um, consider themselves transgender or who've been through surgery or those who are part of the de-trans movement, right? Those who are trying to transition back to the original sex. This is one of the themes that keeps coming up, right? That the expectations that we have for men and women in our culture are really difficult. And so I, I thought, why don't we look at the word of God and see what those are? And so that's what I began to do. John, St. John Paul II says, a theology of the body that recognizes that we are created male and female in the image and likeness of God necessitates a theology of masculinity and femininity. Mm-hmm. And then he does a mic drop, right? He yeah. says this in the middle of the catechesis and walks away. And I remember like every year I was like, this is a mic drop. And then finally I was like, okay, somebody needs to pick up the mic. Ooh, I, I, I knew you were going there. <laughs> and so you were picking up the Pope's mic? I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping with the grace of God, accompanied by other men and women, yes, to be picking up. This like is it. what he wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He was he was actually given a call to to do this, and um, and from my perspective, you know, it's something I I never know. And, and you actually mentioned this before. The church doesn't really have a laid out theology of this or, or way of or teaching about this, correct? So the church talks about the complementarity between male and female, or between man and woman, um, but it doesn't tell us exactly in what that complementarity consists. Right? It can't just be biological because we understand that the human person is more than a biological reality. The human person is a sacramental embodiment of the image of God. Right, So the church has kind of like sketched it out, but it still needs to be colored in. What does that complementarity look like? How is it embodied in man, embodied in woman? And how is it embodied and lived out in a way that doesn't squash our freedom, but actually calls us in freedom to be more conformed to the likeness of God? Yeah, great. Sounds fantastic. Um, We need that. So thank you for doing that. To me, when I approach this, I tend to believe that we need to separate, not just say what true complementarity is, but also distance ourselves from unnecessary, I guess, uh, expressions of uh, gender. Like basically to be a man or to be masculine, cultures have different expressions of that and not all of them are good. Correct? Is that something you've kind of thought about? Exactly. Um, I think that most of us have had the experience when we were kind of little of somebody saying, oh, don't do that. That's not what boys do or don't do that. That's not what girls do. And and sometimes this is, a lot of times it's just cultural, you know, like boys aren't supposed to cry or maybe boys don't take up a, a lot of part in theater or girls aren't supposed to like cry, climb trees or be rough and tumble. And it's funny because when we'll speak about this in class, both with seminarians and with lay students, I'll say, okay, now raise your hand. How many of you guys were interested in theater and music and the arts, right? And they, you know, it's like three quarters of the guys raise their hands. And I'll ask the girls, well, how many of you were tomboys when you were little? How many of you, you know, climbed trees and read books and scraped your knees? And, you know, three quarters of the girls will raise their hands. And I think what it points to is the fact that although there's something very essential about the way that we're embodied as male and female or the sex, right, that God gives us in our creation, that at the same time, he gives us a lot of freedom in the way that we live that out. Um, and that's important because we need to be able to distinguish between a cultural construct, perhaps that keeps me from living out that image of God, right? Um, and that which truly belongs to me as a man or as a woman. That's great. And I think it'll be actually comforting for listeners who um, might not think they fit into 
all of the cultural constructs, all of the things that were traditionally seen as masculine and feminine, like that's not where necessarily the church is going in this description of or, or a fleshing out of the theology of gender. Um, it's not that we're going to just get behind everything that's gone before us, but actually make good distinctions and, and see what's necessary, what's, what's essential and what's not. And I, that's important to me, at least, because um, that's how I've approached the church's teaching on same-sex marriage and homosexuality is saying like, hey, I'm disting, distancing myself from all these things that are, let's say, bigotry or name-calling or chauvinism or whatever that people associate with a Christian understanding of of homosexuality. And I, I first distanced myself from that, and the catechism does. Yes, exactly. Um, and it says, because it says, you know, all unjust discrimination should, should be rejected. It distances itself from what the world response has been and says, but here is the truth. Um, and so hopefully that's what we can do with gender studies. Now let's go into how you plan to do this because you have a cool little plan or, um, your sabbatical is made up of, of something interesting. Why don't you tell the listeners? Yes. Um, so this, this is the idea, right? So we began with sacred scripture and, and to kind of do that exegesis with Genesis two, especially the first encounter between man and woman, 22 through 24, which is where St. John Paul II says that we first see masculine and feminine, right? So if we're going to talk about something that is particular, unique to each sex in the way that they image God, we would find it there. But at the same time, um, we want to be able to show that this isn't something just that we find in a text, right? We want to be able to show, like St. John Paul II did, that we can further elaborate what we find there by looking at it through experience. So with his theology of the body catechesis, what he did was an exegesis of the text, but he did it by looking through the experience of St. John of the Cross, right? Through that experience of faith. And I always find it interesting when I teach a course on theology of the body, especially to people who probably don't, you know, who don't necessarily have a philosophy or a theology degree, or I do, you know, a brief talk at a parish that people are like, wow, that is my experience. Mm. Right. So St. John Paul II was able to pull out what sacred scripture had because he kind of looked at it um, through that, the experience, which kind of magnified some of those elements. So I went to do the same thing. My hope is to look also at sex and gender and sacred scripture through experience and part it's time to pray. It is. No, I'm, it's a seminary. <laughs> bells, Father Wainer, bells all the time. It's cool. Just keep talking. <laughs> okay, so to look at sex and gender in sacred scripture through experience. And to, to because God Emmett Spez says that there are treasures hidden in each culture which mm. help reveal the truth about man and can profit the church to go to cultures around the world and to do phenomenological interviews with experts there on the way that each culture understands masculinity and femininity. And the hope is is kind of that of a prism, right? So if you have a prism or a sun catcher, my mom always had those in the kitchen, right? So we watched the rainbows while we were mm-hmm. washing the dishes. If you have a, a prism or a sun catcher and light shines on it, what happens is that it it creates its own unique spectrum. And that spectrum belongs specifically to that prism, even to the point that if you see the prism, but not the sun catcher, or the, um, you see the spectrum or not the sun catcher or the prism, you can look behind you and identify which one it is, right? Like, oh, that has the right shape. It has the, you know, mm-hmm. the right width. 
Um, so the hope is that by doing all of these interviews, what we can kind of do is kind of sketch out that spectrum because, and physicists will tell you this, when you look at the spectrum of a prism, you also learn something about the prism itself, oh, right? Nice. So exactly what St. John Paul II did to be able to look at that exegesis at the word of God through the experience so that we can better magnify what is already there. Sounds like uh, definitely the foundation of phenomenology, right? So, Certainly. So maybe the listeners aren't familiar with John Paul's approach to theology, but it was informed by his his philosophy, which phenomenology, looking at the experience first and then kind of going to universal truths from there, which maybe it's not all that different the end isn't all that different from how things have been done for many years um, in philo uh, philosophy or theology, um, but the approach is different. I think modern man needs that. Um, it's a good way for modern man that, that I, I guess, um, prioritizes their own experience. And I think there's a, a depth of understanding or, or a proof whenever multiple people's experience matches up to a universal truth. So it's not just, let's say, some uh, Roman, you know, Catholic, uh, old white man, like, telling me what to do, right? And I mean, that's a critique that a lot of people have, right? This, these old men are telling me what to do. We're not coming down on top of you saying, hey, we're universal truth, and now you have to live it. We're saying, this is your experience already, and... Do you desire this? This is already written into your hearts and into your experience and into your desires. Look at all these cultures. Uh, it kind of reminds me of, wasn't there a series called Humanum? Did you remember that? There was. So it was a couple of years ago, I think, in the middle of the Extraordinary Synod and the Ordinary Synod on the Family. And this is kind of what they did in a similar sense. They went through and they looked at the experience of marriage in various cultures around the world. In the videos, those of y'all who have not seen them, you can still go to the Huanum website and, and look at them. They're amazingly well done. Um, even to talk about the struggles and the joys of marriage and the way it transforms people as well as the communities and the societies in which they live. And it was from different perspectives and actually had different languages, uh, translations, little sub captions, um, you know, closed captioning. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, it was cool because it showed the universality of, of this truth, of this experience of marriage, how it's this fundamental unit of society. And so I think this would be the same thing just with gender. Um, so thanks for doing that work. Um, now, what about any, and you might not have an answer for this, so I could cut it out <laughs> if you don't, or if you don't want to talk about it. But um, now what about right now? So this is, you're going to do this work, right? You're going to put this together. We're going to pray about it. We're going to study it. We're going to look at it. But what about someone right now? What does the church have to say in morality right now about someone who might feel like they're misgendered? So, um, you know, they, they feel as if they are one gender, but they they are biologically another gender. What's our approach? Even basic, even basic. Um, do you have any kind of su suggestions? I, I think the first thing that we need to do when someone comes in and they're truly struggling with gender dysphoria, right, which is this feeling of being trapped um, in the body of the opposite sex or of the wrong sex, the first thing that we always have to do is actually listen to what they're saying. Um, studies have shown that a lot of people who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria have suffered some kind of childhood sexual abuse. And so if that is the case, then it's important that they first and foremost get the psychological help that they need for that abuse, right? We, we can't try and just put a Band-Aid on it. We have to say, well, okay, this is a symptom of something. Let's look at that something, that actual wound, and, 
um, and begin to discuss it. I think it's also important that we begin to kind of inform um, Catholics and others about the way that gender-confirming surgery uh, works, right? So often um, if a child, uh, an adolescent or a teenager, and it's very much the movement is focused right now on on young people, so children, adolescents, teenagers, is struggling with gender dysphoria, often their parents are told, um, you can have a dead daughter or a live son, which would you prefer? You need to have this gender-confirming surgery. And yet the reality is that 80 to 90 percent maybe 95% of teenagers transition out, right? So about 22 or 23, some of those who have performed surgeries, who've taken hormones, who have blocked the puberty that, um, that was original to their sex, they wake up in the morning and they say, this is an incredible mistake. I've only done more harm to myself. And so I think parents or relatives who find themselves with someone who struggles with um, their gender or who struggles with the biological sex with which they were created and needs to take a very cautious approach to that, right? There, there might be some kind of wound here. Let's look and see what that wound is, right? Let's go to a psychologist who can help them kind of to explore it. And at the same time, not think that there are ready-made answers, right? So we're a society that kind of lives with pills. I'm, you know, I'm sad. I take a pill and I have a headache. I take a pill. I want to lose weight. I take a pill. And sometimes, right, those pills are really helpful. And then on the other hand, sometimes they just mask doing the hard work, right? Mm. The work that will truly transform us that needs to be done. Absolutely. And isn't it true that Johns Hopkins doesn't do, uh, any more gender reassignment surgeries? They didn't for a long time. Uh, Dr. Paul McHugh, who when he came in looked at um, at the research of both in Northern Europe where they had been doing these surgeries the longest, as well as the information that they had decided to stop. They saw that the rate of suicide was 20% before the surgery and 20% after the surgery. So obviously there, whereas there was a cosmetic change to the person involved, right? There was no actual transformation or no, we could say increased sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a long time they didn't, however, I do believe, and you can check me on this, right? So listeners, you can check me on this. Yeah. I do believe that since Dr. Paul McHugh has retired, they have resumed the surgeries. And the question would be whether that's because they found new evidence or, um, if perhaps this is a political play or there's been a lot of pressure put on them. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I'll try to do that and maybe I'll insert the the reality of what's <laughs> happening or y'all could look it up. But, um, but it is true that for a while they were, I think one of the first ones to do gender reassignment surgery back in the day. And then because of the statistics, the data, they looked at it and said, wait, it's not really helping. So we're, we're putting our energy into the wrong place. And, um, so hopefully we can find answers, um, that are true to, to science, to the data, to the, you know, the biology and um, psychology of the human person, but also true to revelation and what the Lord uh, has for us, because he desires our good. He desires our flourishing and our happiness. And I would say just as a priest, for any parents out there, anyone who's listening, who is affected by this, um, don't despair. You know, the Lord loves you. He loves your children. He loves your grandchildren. Uh, I know that's a big thing. Um, in my experience of just grand grandfathers and mothers calling me or being or one in meetings with me saying like, this is happening in our family. And the first thing I tell them is, um, to just love, 
you know, love. Yes. Don't don't react in a in an angry, uh, or repressive way, um, because Jesus wouldn't do that. You know, He would love the person where they're at, and then uh, try to walk with them to the truth, which hopefully we'll have the truth in about what six months. Or is that whenever your sabbatical is done? Is, is that when we'll no. have the truth? Oh, you're not going to be the bearer of all truth. Oh, okay. <laughs> Praise God, I don't have to be. Uh, the sabbatical will be done um, at the beginning of the fall of 2020, and hopefully the book will be out by the end of next year. Awesome. Well, you can check that out. How can they find all your stuff, you know, the results of the sabbatical and the book, or how follow your journey? Exactly. So, it, I mean, it really is been, has been a journey. So we, I already began a couple of weeks ago. I went to the Native American reservations here in the United States, and beginning those interviews was incredible. People, I walked in, they were slightly nervous or, you know, kind of didn't understand what was going on. We spoke to cultural experts, to people in the universities, um, to people who are prominent members and organizers in their tribe, to elders. And in the first five minutes, you could already see a change, right? Like it was clear that this was um, a joy for them to be able to share their own experience of being male or female in their culture, the way that it's understood, the new, unique gifts that it has to give to the world, right? Just as God Emmett Spaz says, and everybody spoke with us for over an hour. So um, it has been exhausting and amazingly graced. And for those of y'all who would like to follow us, to pray with us, if you'd like to donate the cup of a lukewarm cup of coffee, <laughs> the yeah. cost of that, that would be great too. Um, so you can go to www.redeeminggender.com and there we'll be posting blogs and they're going to teach me how to make videos. So y'all can pray on that too. Um, wow. Videos as we go with some of these interviews. So Mexico, India, and um, Vietnam and Asia. Then we'll go to Africa, Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda, the Middle East for two weeks, and then finally finish off in Europe, Italy, Switzerland, France, and Hungary. Well, that's a lot of phenomenology. That's a, that's that's a, a lot, lot of phenomena. <laughs> You're just taking it in. Wait, so what would you do to raise money for this? What is it, like a bake sale? Did you wash cars out on Carrollton? What's happening here? It's so, a grant? <laughs> no. Okay, so that's a really good question because what happened was I did apply for a grant, right? Okay. And I thought, I'm a Cajun woman doing a project on gender. They should definitely fund me. But... I prayed right before I got the envelope and I said, God, this is a gift. And I opened the envelope and they said, no, we're not funding you. And so I, Who's they? they was a ran, I'm not gonna, okay, I'm not gonna besmirch the Institute that okay. did not want to fund this amazing project. I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. <laughs> so then I had been speaking with Dr. Neil. I spoke with a couple of friends, you know, a lot more about fundraising than I do. Um, and then a former student who's a CPA and I sat down and I prayed about it and I said, okay, we're funding and we will be funding ourselves because we will be founding an institute. So as of about a month ago, there exists in New Orleans, actually, we'd say in southern Louisiana, because we're in three dioceses for mm -hmm. um, the International Institute of Culture and Gender Studies. And our hope is really to begin to use the treasures of the world, right? Like we're a universal church. So use the universal treasures that the church has to offer to better understand anthropology, the study of the human person here in the United States, as well as to understand specifically also those themes that impact or help us better understand gender. I don't know about you out there, but I'm super, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm blown away and it's, it's, uh, amazing, um, that there's people doing this and such faithful 
people tackling such a hard topic, but, um, but also that, that it's, that it's a woman involved, you know, like we need a female perspective. And one of the graces I think from your presence here at Notre Dame is that female perspective in theology, um, that the feminine genius that John Paul talked about, um, or a lot of people I'm sure have talked about <laughs> it, but, um, but the, that adds something to the table. And I think it'll be received if I might say so, uh, in, in a, more open way. Um, and so who else is in this with you? I don't know if I'm allowed to name all of the names yet, but There's so um, <laughs> much secrecy. That's a mystery. <laughs> the website should go up in two weeks. So keep a lookout. Um, but we, I, what I will say is that we've got two priests who are working with us, a religious sister who's absolutely amazing, eight lay people, single married men, women. So the idea was to make it a, a microcosm of the church and have a complementarity at work there. So there are, um, are 11 of us who are beginning, and as part of my journey around the world, we'll also be gathering international consultants who will be able to keep us abreast of the most recent theological and philosophical developments in their country where anthropology and gender are concerned. Well, I sufficiently feel like y'all. this is the most important thing I've talked about on the on the, my podcast. Usually I'm just drinking bourbon and making jokes. <laughs> so uh, this is pretty amazing. So thank you for being on Dr. Miller. I'll put in the show notes um, underneath the podcast, wherever you're listening, I'll put a link to her website if you want to help them and donate um, and follow them on their journey. Um, but look, it's ringing. The bell's ringing. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we offer this time up, um, the mission of Redeeming Gender and the, the Institute and uh, Dr. Miller and her work through the intercession of Mary at Our Lady Seminary here at Notre Dame as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to Coffee Talk with Dr. Jennifer Miller and Father Brad Doyle. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, Father Brad here, and we are coming to you. I say we all the time, like a royal we, but most of the time it's just me. Um, but I'm coming to you from the middle of a hurricane. It's not a big one. It's just cat one, 75 miles per hour winds, but not right now, not where I'm at. Um, and I needed to do some housekeeping. So uh, we're going to start with going around the world. So the only around the world I have is a story from when I was just at Camp Chasatonga in Catalia in North Carolina. I went up to visit these camps that were a big part of my life, said mass, said mass on a mountain on the feast of Pierre Giorgio Fersati, um, blessed Pierre Giorgio Fersati, soon to be saint, hopefully. And he loved hiking, he loved mountain climbing. And so me and Father Tim Hedrick from the Diocese of New Orleans went went up there and we, we did a little retreat slash hike um, up, in, up into the Blue Ridge Parkway. And we ended up on a 6,000 foot bald uh, view with 360 degrees around sunrise mass. It was super cool. Um, it was really rainy the night before, kind of miserable, but, um, you know, the storm always brings the morning. I don't know. It sounded cool to say, but, um, so I said mass up there and there was this, uh, one person, uh, Lucy LaVille, who's a listener, um, part of the LaVille crew. 
and she said she listens while she runs. Um, so it was a little feedback. She says she loves the show, loves um, kind of listening along and, and asking herself the questions and trying to get the right answers. As she runs, she's like a competitive cross-country runner. So pretty cool. Um, and she says she runs as long as the show is. So we're going to just keep talking for about another two hours so she can get a good long run in. I am just joking. So that's our only around the world. Now for Patreon. We got a new patron, but you know him, Mike Wilson. Um, he's an Abbey Ale, $5 sponsor of the show. And so he'll be on. We're going to get to y'all's pa- to patrons that haven't been on soon. Uh, but Mike is from Grand Blanc, uh, Michigan, and he's a contributor. He sent in questions and he's, you know, interacts back and forth at email. Great guy. He's actually the leader of the YouTube channel, The Popish Plot. So we got popes in common as well as being part of the Holy Roman Universal Catholic Church. Mike, uh, great beard too. I think he's growing it out for a year. So go check him out on the Popish Plot, see how his beard's growing in. Um, you know, once Father Ryan Halford said that, uh, you know, he he births a beard like women birth babies. But it's from their fa- from his face. Um, they usually just punch him after he says that. So don't ever say that, Mike, to any woman who's pregnant because they will punch you. Now time for reviews. And we do have another review. So this is from Talcite. Uh, great podcast, Five Estrellas. Father Brad and the team make a highly entertaining Catholic bar trivia podcast. That's exactly what we want to do. Thanks, Tacite. I started off as a listener and then eventually went on to compete in a few episodes. His coffee talks are also good for thought and a constant encouragement to turn back to God. Awesome. So glad that that's the end result, you know, that uh, it's not just frivolous or, um, you know, wasting time, um, even though fun is not really wasting time. And that's the point that it can always bring us back to God and we uh, learn about our faith in the midst of all of our relationships. <coughs> Did 200 people just say, God bless you to me over the airways at different times? That's pretty awesome. Okay, another review. Actually, we have two reviews. Uh, this is from Cisco underscore Nola. Um, July 7th, 2019, he says, this podcast keeps me Catholic woke. Five of Estrellas. I don't even know what woke is. I think it's something those kids are saying nowadays. Father Brad and Grace's insightful Catholic discussions help further my education and keep me informed of Catholic teachings. As for the trivia, other than the frustration I feel when contestants don't pick up on the clues, I do the same for Jeopardy. It's a great way to reach those who grew up in the Catholic in Catholic schools and need a, a good refresher or gut punch. <laughs> I'm not going to punch them. It's okay, Cisco. On what was taught. I recommend this podcast to everyone. My barber, my neighbor, my male lady. Y'all should do that. Whenever you're getting your hair cut, you know, you, you either have great conversation with your barber or it's awkward and you're like, what do I talk about? You should make it even more awkward by telling them about podcasts and CrossFit. Um, so thank you, Cisco Nola. Uh, gives us five stars and we need more reviews. I think we got 19 reviews. Um, let's let's try to get to 25, and, uh, f- and let's try to get to 50 ratings. So we're at 45 ratings. Let's get to 50. Uh, well, we'll definitely do that if we get to 25 reviews. So uh, 25 reviews, a dash to 25, um, a 
high five at 25. I'll give everyone a high five if we get to 25 reviews. If you're listening, you've been a long time listener, go on there. Take some time out. I know you're probably driving in your car. Don't do it now. Wait till you get home and and before you put your hot pocket into the microwave or your strudel into your toaster, give us a review. God bless. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.